Welcome to Students Over Systems, a podcast that celebrates education freedom. I'm your host, Jenny Gentles. At Students Over Systems, we talk with the creators, advocates, and beneficiaries of education freedom. And on today's episode, we're focused on both the education history and the future of school choice. For this important conversation about education freedom's past and future, we're joined by Virginia Walden Ford. Virginia is one of America's leading advocates for power and parent empowerment. As a student, a mother, and an advocate, and a grandmother, she spent her lifetime fighting to create new educational opportunities for children and families. Virginia is a native of Little Rock, Arkansas, and the daughter of two public school educators. She raised three children in Washington, D.C., and her advocacy for her son, William, resulted in the creation of the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program. It also inspired the movie Miss Virginia. Virginia, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. All right. Well, I am so excited because I get to talk to my friend today for for this episode, and I'm really looking forward to delving into school choice history, your role in school choice history, and where you think we are today and where you think we need to to head. Um, But before we talk about school choice, let's talk a little bit about your personal history. You, your twin sister, Harrietta, um, had a big role in Little Rock education history. Tell us about that. Well, absolutely. And again, thank you for having me. Harriet and I were uh, a part of about 135 Black kids that went in the Central 10 years after the Little Rock Nine. It was a really interesting period because we really didn't want to go. We had heard so many negative things. But my dad said to us that um, it was really important that She and I go into Central and do well because we had younger siblings behind us and it would be really important for their futures if we did well at Central. So we entered Central in the 60s and the late 60s and uh, and did well, you know, learned a lot. I remember going into school and they had this amazing library that I had never seen in segregated schools oftentimes. The black schools didn't have a lot of books, so they had out-of-date books, and Central's Library was amazing, so it just really put me in the mindset of trying to do well, and I really think that's what started me in um, becoming a person that would advocate on behalf of children, because so many people had been there for us and were making sure that we were in the right kind of environment. It, It was quite an experience. Well, I've been really fortunate to be with you in parent empowerment, parent training meetings that you've done in D.C. um, over the years and heard you speak a number of times. And I have to say, pretty much every time you bring up your parents and the important role that they played in your life. So I mentioned that both were uh, educators. Talk talk to us about about the role that your parents played. Well, my parents were amazing. They they really were. They made sure that that we had access to everything we needed to be educated properly. But my mom was the first black teacher to integrate white schools in Little Rock. And my dad was the first black assistant superintendent of the Little Rock School District. So they played really major roles in educating children. And I remember both of them saying at some point to me, we have got to do the best we can for all children, not just black children, but all children. And they set about doing that. And they were amazing educators that uh, they really taught us a lot about 
looking at the bigger picture and seeing what was absolutely needed and being a part of it. Actually, we were laughing last night. We were saying, mom and daddy always told us to serve the community, to serve people. And some days when it gets really tired or really overwhelming, we'll look up because they're both in heaven now and we'll look up and say, I wish y'all hadn't told us that, <laughs> you know, because I'm tired. <laughs> but uh, but they did. And we took that very, very seriously. And uh, Harrietta became, Harrietta actually became a teacher in, in the public schools. And, um, and um, it, it, it was amazing to watch her. She was in, a special ed teacher. So she was playing an incredible role for children with disabilities. So, we all really learned from our parents that what was most important, Jenny, was to serve our community, to not be a part of the problem, to be a part of the solution. And uh, it, it really helped me on my way. Well, your service to your community had a huge impact in education in D.C. There is a D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program in large part because of your advocacy. Uh, That program and the story that uh, led to its creation was turned into a movie, a very powerful movie, Miss Virginia. Tell us about first the movie and then let's delve back into more of the D.C. OSP history. What's the Miss Virginia movie about? Well, it's it's actually my story. I mean, it. Uh, I remember when I was first approached about doing a movie, I was like, oh, dude, you know, this is not something I want to do. But as I talked to the parents, and many of them said to me, tell our story, Miss Virginia. You know, make sure our story is told. It became something that was just wonderful to us. And it talks about the problems that parents often have with their children as far as education is concerned and how so many kids and not just black kids, but all kids get lost in the system. And William was one of those kids. Uh, I remember early on somebody saying to me, you might as well just give up on him because he's never going to do anything. And, and, and which really made me angry. And I was like, Oh no, we we will fight for this child. And that's what the movie tells. Uh, I was very pleased that they took um, everything that I had said and shown them and talked about and and really made it into a film that I'm very, very proud of. It really does tell our story. But it, and it also tells the story of how difficult it is for parents to be advocates for their children because oftentimes we're told to back off, to not get involved you know, that somebody else will take care of our children. And then we see them failing and and we don't know what to do. We just don't. And so this film shows that in spite of those kinds of feelings, and I had them for sure, I was not clear what I was going to be able to do, but I knew I was going to do something. I was not going to let my child just fail. And so it and it brought a lot of the parents into it, and a lot of parents who were just anxious to do something, to be advocates for their children. I think, and you know, this one of the first things we say to parents is you can be an advocate for your children. Don't let anybody turn you around. And uh, And thousands of parents over the years have heard that 
and and use their voices to fight for their children. So this film it, it's still really surreal and it's still really out there. And I get calls all the time. People find me on Facebook to talk about the importance of having a film that shows that no matter what, you can do something to help your child. You don't have to sit back and watch your child fail. So it's um I think it's a really important film and I'm 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 really glad that we're able to use this to make sure the parents are inspired and empowered. Well and the film does have a, a life that goes beyond just its initial launch, I think back in 2019 or so. It was available on streaming. I've actually seen it in theaters three times, twice in <laughs> DC and once in Florida. And I remain a super fan, both of you and the Miss Virginia movie. Uh, I highly recommend uh, watching it on the big screen because it is such a powerful story and it does just kind of draw you into the experience that you and the actor portraying your son um, William are are having there, um, and they're quite good actors that they, were they really hired <laughs> for the for film. It's very compelling and and well done. I believe that the film's going to be shown in Virginia fairly soon. So, is there continuing to be like a um, a tour and speaking events that you're doing around this? You know, we still get a lot of invitations. I'm actually going to Virginia for that event. And uh, I'm so, I'm really excited because I haven't been doing a lot of traveling lately, but uh, I was really excited. Virginia has been one of the places that I've been concerned about over the years. So I'm delighted to work with Americans for Prosperity in Virginia to get this kind of information out. But I think it's really important for parents to hear from a parent. And, um, and that's what I am at the beginning of the day. At the end of the day, I'm a parent. And I'm a parent that fought hard so that my children would have access to whatever they needed and um, and led so many parents. I mean, I didn't start this off to lead anybody. I started it off as one fight for one child, my child. But along the way, so many parents have said to me, um, we need to do the same thing. We need to fight for our kids. We're sitting around letting our kids fail in all kinds of ways. And uh, so it's become, it'll be 20 years in January that since we started the fight for the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. And it is, uh, it's been an amazing 20 years. It really has been. But my biggest, um, the thing I love the most about this is that so many parents have been empowered by this. Thousands and thousands and thousands of parents around the country have come forth and said, if the parents in the film can do that, so can I. It's uh, remarkable to see you in action uh, in real life. And people should, people should know that this isn't just a movie. You really did do this. And people should also know that DC is different than other places. You started speaking up at the local school and saying, Hey, this is unacceptable in DC. You then have to go to Congress to get things done. Yeah. And so that's, what's really unique about, about the story. It's, it has to do with the governance of, of the District of, of Columbia. So a lot of the story is around the work that you did in working with members of Congress and uh, overcoming 
pretty stiff opposition in getting this this program through. It didn't stop then, though. And I've talked about this actually on the Student Sober Systems podcast. The movie has a happy ending, but you had to soldier on and keep fighting. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what is the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program? Like what, what type of student is it aimed to um, help? And um, why does the fight continue all these years later? Well, the, the scholarship program is focused on low-income parents in D.C. And, uh, I mean, there's a income um, requirement, and they are the poorest families in D.C. And these were the families that everybody said, no matter what you do, they're not going to do well. And over the last 20 years, we've seen thousands of children that have benefited from that program. It's a three-sector initiative where it uh, uh, gave resources to the traditional public school, charter schools, and the scholarship program. Uh, it's still going on, even though sometimes I hear, I thought that program ended. And I, no, it didn't. It's still going on. And so children are still being served by the program. It was an amazing fight. I mean, initially, uh, people told us that we, no matter what we did, you know, we couldn't get it through Congress. We couldn't fight. And uh, we would probably, people would probably, you know, not be all that interested in fighting harder. But from day one, parents organized and used their voices. I mean, I remember you, you probably do too, did it going to Capitol Hill with tons of parents and, and just signing our names on the guest books in the members' offices. And, uh, and, and we were completely aware that. One of the um, things that's difficult of doing this in D.C. at least is the members, the Senate, and the representatives that we had to talk to and that we had to make understand we didn't vote for. So they had oftentimes they resisted talking to us because we wouldn't make a difference one way or another because we weren't in their states. But I think the more we got our story told, the more we talked to people, the more they begin to understand, we lost uh, Senator Feinstein this week, last week, and she got it. You know, she understood that the Senate and the House had had a, a responsibility to serve the children of the district. I mean, she said it um, in the Senate. And so I felt a little sadness this week when we lost her. But, you know, she made a big difference. And that's what we had to do. We had to make sure that there were people in the House and in the Senate that understood that this was D.C. And it was terrible that D.C. children were failing at the rates at which they were failing. And not just failing, but violence in schools and and parents not feeling like they had any right to do anything. And they would just have to sit back and watch their children fail. You know, so many children that I have... Uh, stayed in contact with are are the next leadership of this country you know and um, and that's been really pleasing to me we set out to make sure that every child in the district had an opportunity to go to a school that their parents chose that was in their best interest including William unfortunately the program didn't get passed so after William graduated but I did get to choose. Initially, we went to a private school that I just couldn't afford, and that just made me mad. It was like no parent 
should see their child doing well and not be able to keep them in that school. And um, and he ended up graduating from a charter school at the top of his class and went into the military and has done incredibly well. So the fight became about every child and not just about my child, even at the beginning. Well, you were extremely effective at getting parents to Congress to have these conversations, which is hard. Parents have jobs. Uh, They have to travel through like multiple forms of public transportation to get to Capitol Hill. They have to wait a long time in order to to see a member. Um, This was hard work. Why did you keep having to do it year after year? What was the opposition to the program? This seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, this well, is a program serving the lowest income families uh, the, and the families who are desperate for their child to leave a failing school and go to a better educational opportunity. Who was opposing it and why? Unfortunately, Black members of Congress were our biggest opposition and there were others. But And, and sometimes I get that question. People ask me all the time, why would anybody oppose a program for low income and mostly African-American children? Why? And so I think it you know, goes back to, uh, it becomes political. It becomes about money. It goes back to the 60s when when oftentimes african american kids were shut out of schools when when they closed after uh, some kind of you know uh, rally or whatever as they did in arkansas you know i don't know if people remember this but in 1957 when the little rock nine went into central high school and president eisenhower had federal troops escort them the next year the governor of Arkansas shut down the schools, you know. So in most cases, African-American kids had nowhere to go. So many of them were sent out of the state or um, or didn't go to school. And, and oftentimes white kids were um, going to schools that their parents started in churches or whatever. There was a lot of pain behind that, you know, a lot of kids not being able to continue and and uh, until the schools reopen. So I think people still feel the pain of that. I try to be sympathetic, but I know my dad said to me, it, it was difficult. It was hard for people, but this is a different time. And I, I hear his voice saying, so you have to fight to make sure people understand that school choice is a way that we can get kids in schools that really work for them and uh, and lead the past behind. And But I get it. I mean, I certainly understand as an African-American woman, but I, I think we have to sometimes let those things go and work for the betterment of the future. And that's what we do. And that's what I've been done. That's what's kept me in this. You know, I remember telling uh, Senator Kennedy one time, you know, you all are fighting against us to keep kids in schools that are not working for them. You know, we cannot do that. You know, he said, well, people fought and died to get into those schools. And I said, but they're in schools that are not working. People fought and died to get into um, integrated schools, but they were different then. These schools are now not working the same way. So we don't want to keep them in those schools. We want them in schools that better serve them. And, uh, 
I, I hope he got it. <laughs> you know, at some point, I think he did. But I think that people got it when you would explain it to them. I think one of the challenges there's so many challenges right now with the DC Opportunity yeah. Scholarship Program, but yeah. one of them is that you don't have the legislative leadership that you inspired in place in in Congress. I don't think that there are um, voices rising up to defend the program in Congress as there should be right now, because it is under threat. There's a a certain amount of of funding that's allocated for the program each year in the appropriations from the federal government. Um, And the program has to offer scholarships worth a certain amount each year. Uh, So if the program funding doesn't grow, but the scholarship amount grows because of inflation and, and other issues, then fewer number of students can benefit, exactly. which ultimately hurts families. And families are being kicked out of the program, which I know is not something that you would want to, to, to hear. And I'm sorry to share that, that awful news. But I, I do think this uh, death by attrition is, is a real risk that the DSA Opportunity Scholarship Program is is facing right now. So what would you say to members of Congress who make bland statements about school choice, but aren't taking action to defend the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program? You know, I, what I would say to them, and, and I have kept up, so I know how difficult it is right now, but I expected it. <laughs> and, um, you know, what I would say to them is these are children in the District of Columbia. This is the capital of this country. You have a responsibility to stand up and fight for them. I mean, I, you know, when I left D.C. in 2011, I left thinking the program would be fine. Over the years, I have really struggled with where it is and what's happening with the program. And uh, so I know, I, I do know Thank you for sharing, but I already heard. And uh, and I would love to come back and speak to members of Congress about their responsibility in serving the children of the district. It's sad to me, if we, but this has been going on for a number of years. And I think under President Obama, you know, the program, uh, we almost lost the program. Yeah. And John Boehner, who was our champion and was... You know, very. I remember him telling me, I, people think our first fight was the big fight. Our second fight was really the biggest fight to keep that program from just going away. And uh, Speaker Boehner said to me, don't give up. We're going to fight for you. But at that time, there was all these voices. There were all these voices in Congress that loved this program uh, and really stood up for it. And you're right, their voices are not there anymore. So again, I think that I tell people this in different cities, don't disband your parent organizing groups once the programs are are uh, in place, you know, don't disband them because you may need them again. And I, and I know that next year we celebrate 20 years of the signing of this legislation I will be in D.C., incidentally, and um, I'll be there somehow because I think it's really important for those of us who went through the fire to stand up and say, we can't let this program go. And I mean, parents have got to have a way to send their children to schools that work in their best interests. And I am a, um, a defender of every delivery system. I like 
schools, but I like schools that are quality and that serve children well. And what I don't like are is when I hear that children are failing in certain schools or there's violence in certain schools. It has always troubled me. So I think we just have to once again stand up and say something has to be done. I think it's the saddest thing in the world that we don't fight harder for education in this country. I mean, it just breaks my heart. I'm getting older. I'm seeing more. I talk to more people. It's just disconcerting to see people think it's okay that our kids are not in schools that are better for them. You know, William ended up graduating valedictorian in his class. Nobody ever thought that he would do well academically. And he did because we fought for him to be recognized as a child that was not failing. And that's what we, I think we have to continue to do. When I started this fight in the 90s, I think it was 98, when I when I started DC Parents for School Choice and we had just gone through a, my first fight that we won and President Clinton vetoed for a scholarship program in uh, the Dick Army and that committee were encouraging people to vote for it. And we won. And so when I was told President Clinton was Arkansas president where I am right now and um, Arkansas governor. And when I found out he had vetoed it. At first, I was hurt. At first, I said, I'm not going to continue to do this. This is in 97. And then I got mad. And I went, I'm going to fight as hard as I can to make sure that these kind of things don't happen. I lived in a community where I watched kids fail. I lived in a community where William's friends were not even going to school anymore. And, and so it created a, a passion in me. This has been my life for 20 years now and uh, or more. And um, I won't stop until every child has an opportunity to be in a school that serves them well or to be in an educational environment that serves them well because I, I also like homeschooling and online school and all those kinds of things. But I think it's really hard now to get to parents. I think we need old-fashioned organizing. We need to take people to Capitol Hill, meet with members of Congress, and tell them how we feel. You know, tell those that have, you know, I worked on behalf of my children 20 years ago, but I have grandchildren. And so I'm, I still have to fight. And, um, I believe, and I think it's my responsibility to continue to do this. And I think that others would feel the same way, but they need leadership. They need somebody to stand up and say, you have got to speak on behalf of your child. And so I, you know, one of the things I do a lot of is go around the country talking to people and trying to get them to understand that without our voices, there won't be changes. There won't. You know, parent voices are crucial and parents need to understand that they are listened to. And um, I mean, I remember members of Congress saying to me, we hear you Mm -hmm. and doing something about it. But we don't see that all over the country, even though school choice has certainly done better over the last few years than many expected. We still have a long way to go. And, And you've heard me say this. If we don't figure this out, this country's in big trouble in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, so 
you know, I'm getting to the age now. At some point, I am going to have to retire. I'm not a young girl. And uh, I don't want to leave this fight without people understanding what I'm saying. I'm still angry about things that I see with children. I run a program at my church. I have never seen so many F's and D's. And so we're starting a tutoring program, try to help the 100 kids to come for after-school programs at our church. But that's a small group of kids compared to what I see around this country. And, and, and now is every child, every child. You know, at one point, mostly African-American, Hispanic kids, now it's every child is in danger of not being educated properly. And the one good thing about being my age is I can say whatever I want. And what I'm saying now is that people need to stand up and fight for these children every day. Well, Virginia, the DC was famously awful when it came to education back when you were when you were battling uh, what you were and 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 you yeah. fortunately you were you were upset you were scared and then you were mad and then you took action and then you had this like joyous triumph uh, that benefited generations of kids in in DC in the form of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. But you look at a, a city like Baltimore where fifty eight percent of students are chronically absent. Yeah. And I think that's what's firing you up right now. You know that that's yeah. happening around the country. It's not just limited to to places like D.C. Um, was uh, back then. It's widespread chronic absenteeism and disengagement from school and schools failing kids. Yeah. And so I hear you telling parents to stand up and fight. Um, what specific action would you tell them to take? Because I think when parents are mad and and scared, it, it can be debilitating in some way. They can freeze, but you were able to push through that and move to action. How do you, how do you, how do they do that? You know, for one of, and I was angry and, and probably at the point that I was angry, I could have gotten anything done, but then it occurred to me that, you know, we needed to talk. We needed to learn how to um, inform ourselves to make sure we had the right kind of information that was necessary to talk to people. And I think what parents have to do now is is listen, find out exactly what's going on that's hurting their children and calmly and carefully and with dignity. You know, my my uh kind of mantra was carry yourself with use your voice and carry yourself with dignity. And that's why a lot of people listen to me and listen to the groups of parents that were stood shoulder to shoulder with me. Because we informed ourselves, we knew exactly what was going on with schools and with our kids, and we still have to continue to do that. Too often, I'm reading about, you know, um, I was reading some last week in St. Louis, and there was a, some kind of event, and people were screaming and upset. And I remember thinking, well, that's not going to work, you know. <laughs> then nobody, when you start yelling, nobody hears you. People stop listening. But if you carry yourself with um, patience and dignity and, 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 and make sure you have the right information, I tell parents all the time, do not go into a meeting and, and just say something you heard. Find out if, if in fact that's true. Because the first time you say something that's 
somebody finds out it's not true, it's not a fact, you lose credibility. I never lost credibility. I always knew exactly what I was going to say because there were so many amazing people around me, yourself included, that, you know, that said, oh, no, that's not right. (laughs) That didn't really happen, so don't say that. And that was really important to me. I'm concerned and have been for a while concerned about parent voices and what they're hearing and what they're saying and how they're doing it. And that doesn't mean every parent. That means there are some parents, you know, when we were organizing our little parent groups in D.C., I remember telling somebody, the loudest parent is not always the best advocate. You know, the one is cussing us out right now is not the person that you really want to be a part of your group. And I understand pain and I understand anger and all of that, but sometimes you got to let that go. And sometimes you just got to make sure that the people that are surrounding you are like you. Uh, I told somebody just last week, there are very few people that just hate straight out hated me even the opposition. And they were willing to talk to me sometime because I tried to be a kind person and make them understand that even though I don't agree with their opinion, I would listen. And that's what I think parents have to learn how to do. Now, right now, our governor just passed in our legislature, just passed amazing education legislation here in Arkansas that I am going to help with as much as I can. And uh, But I'm hearing the negative stuff, you know, and people know that I've been involved in school choice. I've said publicly that I support Governor Sanders and uh, the work that she's doing to benefit every child. And uh, so it's been, a, it's been an interesting time because I haven't been involved in, a, in legislation like this in a long time that affected me. And um, so, but I, but I see the difference in what we did and what they're doing. And, um, and so I, I, I told those here in Arkansas, just let me come talk to the parents, you know, and, um, and, and make them understand that to really be an effective parent advocate, you got to learn certain things. And one of them is to carry yourself with dignity, you know, inform yourself. Make sure that, you know, you're saying things that are always true, you know, and that's that that's my kind of the way I've always lived my advocacy work, you know, say what I believe, but make sure it's what needs to be said and not what you hear on the TV or wherever. And uh, and I think that would be effective, you know, I, Everybody's changing, Jenny. You know, so many people are looking at school choice as a political, financial, whatever. It is about kids, you know. And if we can't keep that in our heads, that this is not about money. This is not about... We had no money. <laughs> None for a long time. And... Uh, and we spoke from our hearts. We spoke, we looked at our children. Remember, I used to tell the parents, and this was before cell phones, so they had to have paper pictures. I said, carry a picture of your child in your wallet or your purse or wherever. And when you get mad at what people are saying, or you get frustrated, 
take that picture out and look at that child and remember who you're doing this for. And uh, I think that's what people tend to to lose a touch with. You know, they don't they forget this is about kids entirely. This is not about who's going to get a big grant or who's going to get somebody to vote a certain way. This is about children and all those members of Congress that I love still cared about children. They talked to me about kids. You know, they wanted to know how William was doing or whatever parent was in the room. They tried to get to know the needs of the families. And that to me was a beautiful thing. And we need to do that again. We need to go back and fight the way we fought. Well, I learned so much um, just tagging along, ordering the pizzas uh, for the for the parent organizing meeting, and just kind of taking in um, taking in what you were saying and and watching you interact with the families, and coming from a kind of wonky policy behind the scenes kind of type person. Um, to be exposed to uh, your approach was just, it was such a gift for me um, okay. and, and, and just a constant reminder to stay focused on the kids, yeah. to stay, you know, to, to, there's a heart to this movement yeah. and, and there is a love, a, a profound love for children in this, in this movement and, um, and that we have to stay focused on that. Don't get lost in the wonky, the the numbers and the policy details. Remember that this is, this is about the kids. So I, I'm so grateful that I've had all those experiences over the years. I and got to be trained up by you. It's um, Mm -hmm. really had a profound impact on, on my life. Uh, Jenny, before we, um, before we conclude, I have one more question. Okay. And that is, uh, what is the myth about school choice that bothers you the most and that you want to dispel today? The, you know, I thought of, I've thought about this a lot. The one myth that bothers me the most, they all do. But this myth really bothers me that parents are not, low-income parents are not smart enough to make choices about where their children go to school. They are um, not equipped to find schools for their children, which is just what it is, a myth. You know, I find I found over the years that low-income parents have more questions about uh, how their children are going to be educated than you could possibly imagine. I remember one parent coming to a meeting. She had gotten together, had a meeting with her family. I'd asked them to write down all the things they wanted for their children educationally. And they would bring it to this meeting she had gotten together with her family and they had a two page list of things that they thought her children needed to know. And um, I was so impressed with so many parents who said to me, this is what I want. They don't think I know anything, but I do. And um, including myself, when I started off, you know, oftentimes people looked at me like I didn't have a brain in my head and that I could not make the right choices for my son. And uh, that's the way a lot of parents feel or felt until you say to them, you are the best teacher of your children. That child can talk and walk and eat and read little simple books and sing songs that you've sung to them. And parents are amazing 
but parents have to know they're amazing, you know, and oftentimes the society does not make you feel amazing, you know, mm-hmm. and so that is the one myth that I, I wish could just get marked out of every piece of document ever, because that is the one that really bothers me the most as a parent and having experienced that myself. You know, what right do you have to say what school William should go to? You know, because I taught the boy how to read and I taught him how to do everything, you know, and people don't get that, it seems. So that thought about it a lot. That's my biggest myth, but I don't like any of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'm mad at all myths that, you know, I think it's ridiculous when people don't sit down and try to understand you know, what this is all about. You know, I, I think part of the reason I'm still doing this, Jenny, is because people just don't get it. You mm-hmm. know, they don't understand. You know, they're so ready to to um, have negative things to say about those of us that just genuinely care about kids and are in this only for the benefit of the child that they don't listen to why that, in fact, exists, you know, I want children to think, I want them to learn, I want them to be these wonderful adults that go off and and solve all the problems of whatever, the society of the world. You know, I look at a couple of the kids that came out of DC Opportunity Scholarship Program that I'm still close to, Tiffany Dunstan, um, Carlos Battle, Jordan White, they're doing amazing things in the world. You know, they really are. And uh, all three of them and many others that I talked to, but I'm talking to them even more. All three of them say, had it not been for the trust that we had, that they could do this and the willingness to fight for it, their lives would be very different. And that's not to say they'd all be in jail or dead or whatever. It would be different. Mm -hmm. Tiffany is Dr. Tiffany Dunstan who is uh, working with John Hopkins in research. Carlos is working in um, in, a, in um, mental health, you know. Um, Jordan is a translator in Japan and has been there for a number of years for a Japanese company. Uh, I mean, these are not things that you often uh, say black kids are going to do. and uh, But they felt that we believed in them when the movie opened in D.C., a thousand people came to the opening. Every one of them came up to me and said, let me tell you what Mark is doing. Or let me tell you what somebody's doing. And, uh, I, and I, you know, I listened. And, and most of the, it was a thousand kids in that program. I didn't know them all, but I felt like I did. And I felt like their mothers needed to, to be excited. They loved the movie. And... Gosh, this has been amazing for me. Jenny, I love the movie so much. This movie is Miss Virginia, and everyone should watch it. If you are a Students Over Systems uh, listener, I question why you haven't watched it yet, but definitely (laughs) watch Miss Virginia, schedule a screening, uh, invite 
our guest, Virginia Waldenford, to participate by Zoom or perhaps in, in person, and it really can make a difference in your community. But uh, Virginia Waldenford, thank you so much for being the inspiration for the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program and the inspiration for the Miss Virginia movie, uh, for training me and so many others in the school choice movement and keeping our eye on what is most important, and that's the children. And thank you for being my friend. And thank you for having me. I love you. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that we got to talk with you today on on Students Over Systems. We hope listeners found today's conversation informative and encouraging. If you enjoyed this episode of Students Over Systems, please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to share this episode with your friends. To learn more about the work of the IWF Education Freedom Center, please visit iwf.org slash EFC. Thank you for listening to Students Over Systems. Until next time, keep celebrating education freedom and brighter futures.